beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mistrust of those in leadership positions is widespread in our society. It is not hard to stir up dissension against those who make decisions about things that we care about. It's especially the case when life is difficult or when progress is slow. Fans of major sports teams will often call for their general manager or coach to be fired because their team did not win enough. They forget that in our professional sports leagues there are 30 or more teams all trying to win the same trophy. Many politicians do not make it to a second term and those who do often suffer abysmal ratings in the polls. It seems we easily get tired of those whom we elect to lead us. When they don't do what we want them to do, we turn against them. In our text, we see something similar. There is a revolt against Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron. A group from among the Israelites was deeply dissatisfied with their leadership. Some of the Levites thought that Aaron had exalted himself over the rest of their tribe, that they too should be able to perform the duties of the priesthood. Others in the congregation charged Moses with making, him, with making himself a prince over them. They charged him with not bringing them into the promised land as he had promised. The whole group wanted to push Aaron and Moses aside. They wanted to be leaders themselves. Previously, some in the congregation were guilty of grumbling and complaining. But in our text, their discontent goes further than that. There is a direct assault against Israel's leaders. These men were rebelling against the present leadership with a view to taking it over themselves. What we witness in our text is a revolt, a rebellion. Now our human nature might sympathize with the people revolting. We are also often unhappy with those in authority over us. But what we need to understand is that Moses was called and appointed by God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. Aaron and his sons were anointed as priests to mediate between God and his people. This revolt was not just against human leaders. It was a rebellion against the Lord himself. Our text shows the sad consequences of what happens when you revolt against the Lord. It is one of the worst episodes in the whole history of Israel's desert wanderings. It pictures Israel's deepest descent into anarchy and rebellion. It also shows how the Lord comes to the defense of his appointed leaders. He makes an example of the rebels by causing the earth to swallow them up and by sending down fire to consume them. Yet the, really part, yet the really sad part of the story is that the Israelite congregation doesn't learn anything from this. They blamed Moses and Aaron for the deaths of their fellow countrymen. At that point, the Lord strikes the nation with a plague, and many more thousands die. It's tempting for us to write this off as ancient history, and so to dismiss it. But 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for our instruction. 
The letter of Jude mentions Korah's rebellion as something that we should learn from. We also need to remember that the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. Somehow, this story also relates to him and his redemptive work. And so this morning, we'll try to discern what the Lord is teaching us in Numbers 16. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Leaders from among the south camp incite a rebellion against the Lord. We'll consider the nature of the people's rebellion and the nature of the Lord's response. To understand the rebellion that took place in our text, we need to understand its source. From Numbers 2, we learned about the layout of the Israelite camp. The Israelite camp was arranged around the tabernacle. The most prominent tribes camped on the east. The next most prominent tribes on the south. The third position of honor was on the west, and the remaining tribes camped on the north. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun occupied the most honorable place on the east. Three of the men leading the rebellion were Dathan, Abiram, and On, from the tribe of Reuben. While Reuben was the eldest of Jacob's sons, he had lost the status as firstborn because he slept with his father's concubine Bilhah. His tribe no longer held the most prominent position. They were encamped on the south, in the second most honored place. Just like the tribes were encamped around the tabernacle, so were the priests and the Levites. They camped between the people and the tabernacle, with the priests in the most honored position on the east. The descendants of Kohath on the south, the descendants of Merari on the west, and the descendants of Gershom on the north. Korah, one of the leaders of the rebellion, was a descendant from the tribe of Kohath. They too thus occupied an important place in the camp. But it was second place after the priests who descended directly from the lineage of Aaron. And so we see that the rebellion originated from the south camp. It originated from among men who held honored and prominent places in Israelite society. But they were not at the top. They were in the second place. It seems that second place was not good enough for them. Korah wanted to be in the position of the priests. The Reubenites envied the position of the people of Judah. Discontent and grumbling often arises from our jealousy of others. We feel hard done by because others appear so blessed. Feels like I'm missing out. Even though that's often not true. In this instance, the rebels held prominent positions in Israel. Discontent and grumbling often spread. It's striking that this rebellion comes from the south camp. Korah from the Kohathite clan of the Levites collaborates with Dathan, Abiram, and On from the tribe of the Rumanites. These men were camped side by side. Grumblers often manage to find one another. They seek each other out. They spur each other on. 
It happens in the church today as well. The people that you associate with are the ones that have the most influence on you. If you keep company with jealous, negative, critical people, it's easy to take on their attitudes. We see the result in our text. The leaders Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On rose up against Moses and Aaron with 250 other men. They gathered numbers to support their cause. Now these men were not part of the rabble, like in Numbers 11, who had a strong craving for the food they ate in Egypt and led the people in grumbling and complaining against the Lord. These 250 men were chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They were leaders in Israel. And so we see that this is not some casual or some spontaneous uprising. It is a planned revolt against Moses and Aaron. Within this rebellion, there's two distinct groups of people with two different agendas. Korah was a Levite. He had problems with the fact that Aaron was designated high priest and that his family were the ones who presented offerings to the Lord on behalf of all Israel. He tells Moses and Aaron, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Wasn't Korah right? Were not all God's people holy? Were they not a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Yes. In Exodus 19, verse 6, that's what the Lord himself said about his people. He said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Last time in Numbers 15, we saw that the Lord gave the command that the people wear tassels on their garments with a cord of blue in the corner of each tassel. The precise purpose of that blue cord was to remind them of their royal and priestly status. But Korah was wrong in the charge that he made against Moses and Aaron. He charged them with exalting themselves above the assembly of the Lord. The focus of Korah's attack was against Aaron. What Korah was saying was that Aaron had taken the position of priest on himself. That's simply not true. While Israel was camped at Mount Sinai, the Lord anointed Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. You can read about that in Exodus 40. Thus, while all the Israelites were to live holy, priest-like lives before God, Aaron and his sons were the ones God appointed to minister in the tabernacle before him. The Reubenites, Dathan, Abiram, and On had a different agenda. Their complaint centers on what they see as Moses' deficient leadership. They accuse Moses of taking them out of a land flowing with milk and honey, Egypt, and bringing them into this desert. They charge him with breaking his promise to bring them into Canaan. At the heart of their accusations is the charge that Moses made himself prince over them. Jealous people who grumble and complain often ignore the truth. Egypt was not a land of milk and honey. It was a place where the Israelites had been forced into slavery and where Pharaoh had instituted a program of genocide against them by killing off 
their baby boys. God brought ten plagues upon the Egyptians to punish them for what they did to his people. By the time Israel left Egypt, it was utterly devastated. Further, the reason that Moses did not bring the people into Canaan was not because of any fault in his leadership. The people gave ear to the negative report of the ten spies. They refused to heed God's command to go in and take possession of the land. These men from the tribe of Reuben and the 250 men who followed them in the rebellion were chiefs in the congregation. They were leaders in, e in Israel. It was their own fault that the Lord condemned them to 40 years of wilderness wandering. And finally, the idea that Moses had appointed himself to be prince over them is simply absurd. The Lord called Moses at the burning bush. Despite Moses' repeated attempts to get out of his appointment, the Lord commanded him to go to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. The history of Exodus shows that Moses was one of the most reluctant leaders ever in human history. The charges that these Reubenites made against Moses are totally untrue. But they made them because they were discontent and jealous. Beloved, there's much that we can learn about the nature of rebellion from our text. Rebellion is most often rooted in a general dissatisfaction with life. Life in this fallen world can be tough. We can be faced with many struggles and hardships. But when you rebel due to being unhappy with your lot in life, who are you really rebelling against? Aren't you rebelling against God? We confess that all our lives are in God's hands. We believe in God's providence, that by His almighty hand He governs all things. That includes fruitful and barren years, health and sickness, riches and poverty. We most often don't understand why God allows us to struggle and to suffer. But blaming Him and rebelling against Him solves nothing. It's striking to note that in bringing charges against Moses and Aaron, the rebels leave God out of the picture. They portray Moses and Aaron as self-appointed leaders who are in it for their own power and glory. In a way, it's understandable that they thought in that way. For if these men were put into leadership positions, they would likely abuse their leadership role to serve themselves. They were interested in holding power, in having prestige. They were not interested in serving others, in shepherding God's people. In books and movies, and even in real life, rebels are often admired. In our hearts, we are inclined to cheer for the underdog. We find it admirable that there are people who have courage to stand up to corruption in leadership. Yet we need to be on guard, beloved. While there are lawful ways to oppose corruption and abuse, 
rebellion is not an admirable trait. It's often rooted in the works of the sinful flesh, in envy, jealousy, covetousness, insolence, and pride. Rebellion is often promoted by people who are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. One of the clearest condemnations of rebellion is given by the Lord against King Saul. Saul repeatedly disobeyed the commands of the Lord. When confronted with his rebellion, he made excuses and he blamed the people for his sins. In response, the Lord told him, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Divination is the practice of seeking knowledge of the future by supernatural means. It often involved contact with the world of evil spirits. It was strictly forbidden to God's people under punishment of death. It shows how serious rebellion is in God's eyes. Rebellion against Him is something He will not condone. We deal with this in our second point. In it we see the nature of the Lord's response to this rebellion The Lord has said that only Moses and Aaron could approach him. No one else was allowed to enter the tent of meeting. Korah and his followers challenged this. They thought anyone in the camp should be allowed to serve as priest. So Moses arranged a test to see whose offering God would accept. He commanded Korah and his 250 followers to come with their censers and put fire and lay incense on them and for Aaron to do the same. Whoever's offering God accepts will be the ones God chooses as holy and acceptable to him. Korah and his followers do so. Our text says that Korah assembled all the congregation against Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The south side rebellion has spread. The whole congregation has taken up their cause against God's appointed leaders. It is surprising that Korah's men dare to follow through. Earlier in their desert sojourn, Nadab and Abihu had offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, and they had died for it. Korah's men didn't just offer incense in a way not commanded by God. They were actively rebelling against him. Yet in their pride, they somehow thought that they would get away with it. God responds directly to the rebellion led by the south camp. Our text says that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. The Lord was angry and he told Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from the congregation so he could consume them in a moment. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces interceding for God's people. They pleaded that the Lord would not destroy the entire congregation for the sin of one man. God relented and did not destroy the entire camp. But he did command everyone to get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses went to Dathan and Abiram and told the entire Israelite camp to get away from the tents of these men. He told the Israelites that if these men died a natural death, then the Lord had not spoken through him. He said, but if the Lord creates something new, And the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them. And they go down alive into Sheol. 
then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Immediately the ground opened and the earth swallowed them up. Our text says that they and all they belonged went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished in the midst of the assembly. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense before him. Beloved, our text makes us profoundly uncomfortable. It is used by many skeptics to critique God's character. Many accuse the Lord of being a cruel and a vindictive God. What kind of God would cause the earth to swallow up people opposed to him? Or would send down fire from heaven as a punishment? Our text speaks about people being buried alive, of being sent to Sheol. What the Hebrews called Sheol, the Greeks called Hades. It's the realm of the dead. Often in the Bible it's equated with hell, a place of punishment meant for the wicked who have died. So is God indeed vindictive? Was this a cruel punishment? I guess it depends on whether or not you're willing to accept the Bible's testimony about who God is. Many today see God exclusively as a God of love. They present God as gracious, merciful, and forgiving. Indeed, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But that's not the whole story. Despite being kind and generous, merciful and long-suffering, there comes a time when God holds people to account. God is just. He is fair. He gives many opportunities for us to repent and put our trust in Him. But if we continually reject God and oppose Him and disobey His commands and rebel against Him, a day of reckoning will come. On that day, God's justice is manifest. He punishes us according to our transgressions. He pours out His wrath on those who rebel against Him. Please don't forget the history of God's people leading up to our text. Numbers 14.22 tells us that when God decided that He would not allow the people who rebelled against Him to enter the Promised Land, it was because they had put Him to the test ten times. They had not obeyed His voice. In Numbers 15, the Lord had reiterated His promise that He would bring His people into the land of Canaan. All those who were 20 years and younger, along with Caleb and Joshua, would be allowed to enjoy the blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel's response to that was the rebellion we see in our text. Please understand, beloved, that this rebellion was not just by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and their followers from the south camp. They gathered all Israel with them at the tent of meeting against Moses and Aaron. If that were not bad enough, after the Lord punished these men by swallowing them up with the earth, 
and consuming them with fire from heaven. We see a further rebellion among the people. The very next day, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. God responds by immediately sending a plague upon the people. 14,700 of them die before Aaron is able to offer incense and make atonement for them. We see, beloved, that rebellion against the Lord and His commands is serious. We see that rebels come under God's condemnation. That doesn't apply just to ancient Israel. It applies just as much to us today. Hebrews 10 warns us that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 2 Thessalonians 1 speaks about Jesus coming from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's message is consistent. Rebels will come under God's severe punishment. They will be condemned to hell forevermore. So, beloved, where does that leave us? Our text makes clear that we desperately need Jesus in our lives. We are people who mess with God in different ways over and over. We fail to do the things that God commands. We do the very things God warns us against doing. If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit we mess up every day. What the Israelites got in our text is something that we all deserve. It's only because Jesus stands between God and us that we are not destroyed. Yet, beloved, for Jesus to intercede for us, we need to put our faith and our trust in Him. We need to believe that He came into this world to save us from our sins. To believe that Jesus died on the cross to cover our wrongdoings before God. For us to share in God's forgiveness in Christ, we need to repent of our sins. We need to confess them before God and plead for forgiveness. We need to pray for the work of the Spirit in us that more and more we may fight against our sins. We cannot go on living as rebels. Our text gives us some glimpses of God's grace and mercy. It started by mentioning four rebels by name, Korah, Datham, Abiram, and On. But On, the son of Peleth of the tribe of Reuben, is not mentioned further in our text. God's judgment fell on Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, on their households and followers. It's possible, it's even likely, that On repented, that he and his household were spared. What is much clearer is that some of Korah's sons did not perish in the judgment that fell. In our text, Moses called on those wanting to be saved to step away from the tents of the leaders of the rebellion. 
Apparently, some of Korah's sons stepped away from their father's rebellion. When referring to this incident, Numbers 26 verse 11 tells us, the sons of Korah did not die. Further, 1 Chronicles 6 speaks about how some of Korah's descendants became temple singers. Some of our loveliest psalms were written by Korah's offspring. They include Psalm 42 and Psalm 84, which speak about thirsting for God, about appearing before Him in His house. Beloved, despite the fact that we're often weak and inclined to sin against God, there is hope for us. That hope is centered on Jesus Christ. Think of the punishment God brought on those who rebelled against Him. Fire from heaven came down and consumed them. The earth swallowed them up, so they went down alive into Sheol. Now think of what Jesus did for us. As our mediator, he entered Sheol, the realm of the dead. More than that, he suffered God's wrath against all our sins by willingly undergoing the agony and the torment of hell. Jesus did that for you and for me, for all who believe in him. Don't mess with God by being a rebel. Submit your heart and life to Him out of thankfulness for redeeming you from the judgment of hell. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from Psalm 26, stanzas 5, 6, and 7. <laughs> 